Hello and welcome to my podcast, The Rise and Fall of the Qing Dynasty, Cup of Solid Gold. And this is Episode 3, The Founding Father's Legacy. Before I get into the material that I intended to cover for this episode, I need to make a correction. In episode one, I mentioned a fellow by the name of Zhang Xianzhong, also known as the Yellow Tiger, and that he led a revolt in Shanxi Province, China. That is all true. But I also stated that he later fled to Taiwan and started the Tungning Kingdom. That is incorrect. Actually, the Yellow Tiger was hunted down by the invading Manju army and killed only a few years after the revolution that he initiated. It was another rebel leader that I did not mention in that episode, Zheng Zhenggong, that fled to Taiwan and started the Tungning Empire. So I apologize for that. I'm sorry. In reviewing my notes, I realized I'd read off the wrong Chinese name. I try not to let these things happen. But when they do, rest assured, I will bring them to everyone's attention as quick as possible. So much of what was to become the Qing in the early years of their reign began with Nuar Hachur. I talked in the last episode about the things that he had done, that he had organized and empowered the Manjus to go to whatever heights they wanted to go to. And part of his legacy are the sons that he left behind. And collectively and individually, they were powerful, competent, strong, and experienced military leaders. They were all conquerors. They were all warriors. This was the mindset they had. They were all rowing in the same direction, so to speak. I think they had the single-minded purpose to strengthen Manju, Manchuria, and to some extent, conquer China. The reason I say to some extent is it's not real clear after Nuar Hachur if the succeeding emperor wanted to immediately conquer China or whether he was trying to broker some kind of peace so he could build and strengthen the, um, the Manju Empire. During this time, both China and Manchuria were not in very good economic order or social order. So I think they were all looking for solutions to those, that problem. And certainly the conquest of China would have been an option, particularly when they, the China, the Ming Dynasty, was having the difficulties they were. Nonetheless, after a little bit of drama, the surviving sons did choose a successor, and it would be Nuar Hachur's eighth son by the name of Huang Taiji, and that was his personal name. 
And remember, his full name would have been Aishin Jialo Huang Taiji. Aishin Jialo Huang Taiji. I think that's a pretty cool name. Now, there were stories of forced suicides and things like that in order to game the system and give one of the other surviving brothers an advantage over the other brothers. And not a lot of that is has been verified and corroborated. In fact, a lot about Huang Taiji's ascension to the throne is not known. So I think it would be speculation to go on about it too much longer. But I do think it's important that at this point we talk a little bit about this secession problem. And succession to the throne was always going to be a problem. The emperor, in theory, could name any of his sons. The assumption, however, was that he was going to choose his eldest son, if capable. But there was a problem, a dilemma. If he named his son before he died, cliques would invariably form around the chosen son, and self-interested persons would try to earn his trust or friendship. If the emperor lived long enough, impatient heirs might even plot to imprison or kill the emperor. But not naming an heir was equally undesirable as invariably cliques would form around all the possible successors and plot against each other. So this is the dilemma that I think all the emperors had and what is an emperor to do? Rest assured, we will have more succession drama in future episodes, so stay tuned. So why was, why was Huang Taiji chosen? Well, he was one of the older sons surviving at the time of his father's death. And also, apparently, that his father was impressed with him when he was a much younger man when the Ming army had invaded Manju in 1619. The new Arhatur was impressed with Huang Taiji's display of bravery and determination in resisting the invaders. He was also one of the senior members of the Bela, so he obviously had his father's trust while his father was still alive. He was born in Shenyang in 1592, and soon after his father died, he had to address the problems, some of the problems left by his father, and one was the miserable economic state of affairs that were in Manjo at that time. He first needed to buy some peace with the Ming dynasty. And he did this by negotiating or attempting to negotiate some kind, some kind of a peace treaty with them, where he allegedly had brought up his father's old complaints about the death of their, their, his grandfather and his great-grandfather uh, and their lack of respect for Manju envoys. But he also asked the Ming for a tribute or an extortion, if you will, that in return for the Ming payment of money to the Manchus, they would no longer harass or invade or cause problems for Ming China. It was hoped that the money could be used to help strengthen the economic conditions that were present in Manzhou. 
The only response that Huang Taiji got from the Ming was they wanted their city back that had been previously captured by their by his father, and they would not agree to pay a tribute to the to the Manchus. About this same time, Huang Taiji directed that an army be sent into Korea for the purposes of finding food and supplies. And at this time, Korea was very vulnerable because it had never recovered from the invasion, from the Japanese, from the Japanese invasion in the late 16th century in the Injim War. He sent this army under the pretext that the Korean king had not sent condolences to the Ming, to the Qing rather, on the death of Nuar Hachur. Nevertheless, the Manjus eventually threatened the Korean capital and forced the Korean king to send Manju annual tribute and recognize the Manju emperor as a brother. And a peace treaty was signed with Korea in 1627. Now, I don't know at what point or what was the trigger that Huang Taiji decided that he wanted to take a run at Ming China. And he did so, attacking the very same strongholds around Sanhai Guan and, and Ningyuan that his father, about a year ago, had tried to take and that where his father was mortally wounded. That did not go well for Huang Taiji. They were repulsed, and they realized that in the only way they, were be, they would be able to take these particular strongholds from the Ming was through a siege, and that was not something they were willing to do. So another plan, they needed another plan, and Huang Taiji decided that he would go another way into China via Inner Mongolia, where he believed the defenses were a lot less than what he encountered in San Haiguan. He easily defeated the local indigenous tribes at that time in Inner Mongolia, and Huang Taiji's army actually made it to the outskirts of Peking in 1629. But Peking was well defended by the Ming, and eventually, Huang Taiji would withdraw from this area completely, and the Ming rapidly retook those areas. Huang Taiji decided then, before he would attack China again, he needed to make sure that his east and west flanks were secure first. So he started with Mongolia, where again they eased the Qing or the Manju army easily defeated the local natives. Some of those were called the Charhars, and they were originally part of Kublai Khan's clan. With Inner Mongolia secured, he could now, Huang Taiji could now look back towards Korea. And in 1636, Huang Taiji himself led the assault the second assault into Korea. Even though they had an agreement barely 10 years old, 
Huang Taiji felt that the Koreans had not fully abided by it. And again, as before, the Korean king was forced to swear allegiance to the Manjus, renounce their allegiance to the Ming dynasty, and give aid and support to the Manjus in their conquest of China. So now he had the east and the west flanks secured. He decided it was time to check the resolve of the Ming to defend again an assault by the Manjus. And from roughly 1636 to 1643, the Manju army conducted systematic major military campaigns into China, not for the purposes of war, conquest, but more of a reconnoiter to to seize treasure and booty and to gain intelligence. During these various military campaigns, they were it was alleged that the Manju army had seized vast amounts of treasure, had gained vast amounts of intelligence on the Ming defenses, and had also captured roughly 750,000, if you will, prisoners of war. The way now was open to China. There's one problem, however, and that is that Huang Taiji died unexpectedly from unknown causes in September of 1643. He was only 50 years old, and he was laid to rest in Shenyang, China, just like his father. It would be only seven months later from this point that the dashing king, remember him, Li Jurchang, would capture Peking, and then the battle at San Haiguan involving Qing forces and the combined armies of the, of the Qing forces and the Ming forces. And eventually, of course, the Manju Qing army arriving in Peking in Ju- on June 6th, 1644. Huang Chai-ji was, his successor was, his ninth son, Fulin, who would eventually be named his successor and 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 um, the next emperor. So, if you review real quick, Huang Taiji, he did not conquer China, of course, but he is largely responsible for setting the eventual conqueror of China, setting that up. He brought Inner Mongolia and most of Manzhou into Chinese control. He expanded Chinese territory. He strengthened the Qing Qing brand, if you will. He increased their wealth, their territory, and eliminated a lot of their enemies. Unfortunately, Huang Taiji's death would present the Qing with its first real McCoy big-time succession crisis. And that will be the subject of our next episode. So Huang Taiji's legacy, I believe his dynasty was a good one. He promised to never raise taxes and he kept that promise for his reign. 
for a brief moment in 1644 and 1645, right after they had the Qing had 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 captured Peking, they named the dynasty Jin. Huang Taiji changed that name to Qing. And it's not clear where the name came from. But I thought I'd talk right now about some of the theories of where that name came from, only because I think it's interesting and, and fascinating. One theory is that the Qing, the Qing sound is a lot like Jin. I read that. I don't believe that. Jin, Qing don't really sound alike. So I doubt that that's one where that name, where the Qing name came from. Another really cool theory comes from the Wuxing or Five Ways philosophy. And this is an ancient, ancient, ancient Chinese theory that explains a whole array of phenomenon from cosmic to succession to politics. The Wuxing argument is that the Mandarin written character for Qing has a water element to it. And the Mandarin written character for Ming means bright, like from the sun or the moon. And that has a fire component. So according to Wuxing philosophy, water, Qing, overcomes fire, Ming. Like I said, it sounds cool if true, but it also sounds a bit too deep and therefore not likely. Another really cute theory is that at some time in Nuar Hachir's life, a dog by the name of Daching saved his life. And therefore, there's some that have argued that's where the name came from. Again, cute story. I don't think so. The last two to me, are more likely. And that is that there are rivers in Manjo, I've read, that are called Qing, or were called Qing. Another one is that Qing is a morphed version of a Mongolian word meaning warrior. Those last two sound a little more plausible, but the bottom line is, I don't know. I don't know if anybody knows. And so that's been a mystery of where the name Ching, how that name came about. All right. So the next stage is now set for the real beginning of Manju-governed China. And the next episode, the new dynasty begins. But not without the succession crisis that's coming. It's been a pleasure, and I thank you. <laughs>